Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Partly Political Broadcast, episode 76. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, like Prime Minister and what happens when one supply teacher you had that made you realise, oh wait, adults really don't know everything, is then allowed to rise up the ranks, Theresa May, like her, I... (coughs) Sorry, this week I... (coughs) I'm sorry. (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. (coughs) Ha! Of course, I won't be doing the uh, whole show like that. It would be really hacky. Yes, that gag is the bar for this week's show. Deal with it. Closing the Conservative conference last week, Theresa May pitched the idea that each generation should live the British dream. A terrifying notion because I really don't want to spend the next four years waking up to find I'm in my school assembly and I've forgotten to put my trousers on again. But instead, while coughing and spluttering through the set as though she'd stupidly had the wrong engine oil put in pre-conference, being handed a P45 by comedian Simon Brodkin and then letters falling off the backdrop of the stage, it turns out that actually living the British dream is allowing everyone to revel in absolute Schadenfreude for at least an afternoon. Because in true karmic style, of course it would turn out that the British dream was a German word. If Theresa May continues this arc and rewards the British public, perhaps with her slipping on a banana skin mid-interview or conducts Prime Minister's questions while someone carries a ladder around that she repeatedly tries and fails to duck, she may end up being popular once again. Or hey, at least get a decent sitcom time slot on BBC One. In reality, though, this speech was the last straw for many who believe that despite pushing through her croaky voice and cough, that really Theresa May lost her political voice months and months ago. MP for Wellin Hatfield and Hamster, who's witnessed true horror that he can never unsee, Grant Shapps, announced that he had a letter signed by 30 MPs calling for Theresa May to resign. Though I do wonder if this was actually a clever plan to elicit some public sympathy for May, because really the only thing most people would like to see more than Theresa May failing is Grant Shapps, who by any other name is still an arsehole, falling headfirst down a well and then someone editing his Wikipedia page with day-to-day updates about how he is stuck down there. May has said she won't be stepping down as she doesn't hide from a challenge. And of course, she doesn't hide from a challenge, you know, except for all the debates she avoided during the snap election earlier this year, or meeting the survivors of the Grenfell Tower fire, or condemning Donald Trump's comments. I mean, the way this is looking, May not hiding from the challenge to her leadership will likely involve her disappearing without comment as Amber Rudd steps in as a substitute. 
Foreign Secretary and overripe potato Boris Johnson is urging so-called friends to stop briefing against May, which is further proof that he doesn't actually have any real friends. Boris told the Conservative conference last week during his speech that we can win the future, although judging by the age of most people in attendance at the conference, if it's more than a few months away, they might not make it that far. Johnson insisted that it is time to let the British lion roar, which, considering the circles he moves in, is probably just to let his so-called friends know where to find the British lion so they can shoot it and have a picture taken. As always, controversy follows Johnson around like a lingering fart follows a massive arse, and this time it was his comments at a Conservative conference fringe event that kicked up a stink. He was recorded as saying that the Libyan city Certe could be the new Dubai, but all they have to do is clear the dead bodies away. A horrible, callous statement, completely expected of Johnson, and proof that he is trying his best to ensure that former PM David Cameron's Libyan intervention continues to be carried out without any intelligence analysis at all. Bojo should really listen to his own advice, as the Conservative government could be a working machine, but all they have to do is clear the dead weights like him away. Senior Conservatives are now advising May to do exactly that and demote Boris, though Boris says if she tries, he will just say no, which will probably work, as May said earlier in the week she doesn't want to be surrounded by yes-men. Meanwhile, Brexiteers in the party want May to sack Chancellor of the Exchequer and sad Mordecai from the regular show, Philip Hammond, because he's making Brexit hard and being miserable. Yeah, what a sensible suggestion, Brexit is. Do you know what else makes Brexit hard and miserable as well? That's right, Brexit. Maybe just sack that off too. In the US, President of America and what happens if you don't lance a boil, Donald Trump, responded to the tragic massacre in Las Vegas last week that left 59 dead and 500 injured by just saying that he'll be talking about gun laws as time goes by. Of course, because we all know that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is by more powerful bad guys ignoring the call for gun laws, allowing more bad guys to have guns until everyone ever dies in a massive gunfight. Ha ha, bad guys, you lose. Meanwhile, the Trump administration has rolled back the mandate for birth control, meaning companies do not have to provide for it on their healthcare plans. It's almost as if they adamantly want women to provide more fodder for their mass shooting sprees. In Spain, hundreds of thousands of protesters marched for unity between Spain and Catalan, while Catalan leader Carles Puigdemont will make a speech this week that many expect will declare independence, despite Spain's King Philippe VI saying it is illegal. Luckily for everyone in this tense situation, former UK Prime Minister and terminally ill Cheshire cat Tony Blair has pitched himself as a mediator for the situation. Phew! So I guess Carly Thanos and the ghost of Genghis Khan weren't available. I mean, if nothing else, I guess there is the chance that, like in the UK, Blair will bring both the Spanish and Catalonian people together to join in their hatred of his stupid, stupid face. Scotland has entirely banned fracking, saying it would cause long-lasting negative impacts on communities. And hey, let's be fair, they do already have the Scottish independence question and buckfast for that. Oh, and in a last-minute Brexit update, Theresa May has told the EU that the ball is in their court, which proves we didn't listen when we were told we shouldn't kick it over that way anyway, and if we try to climb the fence to get it back, they'll probably tell our mum and we won't get any cake. It does look increasingly like there will be a no-deal on Brexit negotiations and the UK government will just walk away from any possibility of making things work. When asked about a second referendum on perhaps allowing the UK to decide what terms that we leave the EU, Theresa May said the British people have had their choice. Well, yes, they did, but it's a bit like saying that we got asked if we want ice cream or not and we said yes, please, without knowing that the flavour of that ice cream just happens to be dog turd. 
Hello, hello. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening to the show. I am recording this fresh from going to a music gig, like the fucking cool guy I am. Check that out. I've just been to see um, brilliant Glaswegian musician Johnny Common. Uh, if you don't know his music, then you have made a mistake, and you should really check that out. Um, he released a new single last week called Restless, and it is bloody good. Uh, but it does, however, mean I have got music gig voice, which means I have been talking to people uh, during volumes that were far too loud. Apologies. Um, but there you go. Thank Thank you for tuning in anyway and thank you this week to the five people who reviewed the show on itunes uh, last week which is so very very nice of you indeed and please 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 do give the show a review on your podcast application of choice if you haven't already um i'm guessing app is short for application right i mean i've never actually looked it up i mean i could look it up but hey why not just follow current trends and assume i'm right as that is far easier i mean it is unlikely to be say podcast appellation isn't it you know podcast appendicitis i doubt it but yeah look whatever your podcast apprehensive please do give it a review as it does genuinely help i mean not in the grand scheme of the universe of anything um i doubt your review will stop an impending comet from crashing into the solar system but at the same time if early 2000s ashton kutcher films are anything to go by who knows i mean your review could actually be pivotal to worldly outcomes in fact i take it all back why not all review the show several times in the hope that your carefully worded praise could actually give boris johnson a nosebleed in some reality think it that would be totally worth it um thank you also to henry for donating to the patreon which you can do at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and to Annie who donated to the Kofi, which you can do at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro and all of those donation things can change the world or at least my world and it all goes towards making this podcast better and spending more time on it which if things keep going how they are have every chance of making say Boris Johnson's ears bleed or burn or whatever it is when you mention someone a lot I mean in fact if anything burning might be better especially as he has such dry straw-like hair that covers his ears Anyway, um, not much admin this week, apart from my show at the Aberdeen Comedy Festival this weekend. Um, I am on the stupidly late time of 10pm at uh, Knox, and that is on Saturday, October the 14th. Um, I couldn't remember dates then, that was good, wasn't it? Um, Saturday, October the 14th, 10pm at Knox. I'm going to be doing 20 minutes of new stuff, followed by my hour show. Uh, And by new stuff, I mean things I haven't written yet. So if you're in that part of the uh, frack-free north and fancy a late evening of laughing, then please, please, please do come along. Um, Details on the Aberdeen Comedy Festival website, which you can find by using a computer, like I hear they do nowadays, or perhaps really intuitive detective skills. Instead of admin this week, uh, what I did have was an email uh, that was sent to me and a Twitter comment that was um, tweeted to me that I thought I would mention and part reply to, but rather than clog up this beginning bit like a sort of oral fatberg, I've added a new section to the end of the podcast, which you can look forward to there, or if you're part of the 35% of listeners who give up listening to this podcast every week at 38 minutes, then you can just ignore it. Um, That is what the handy stats on ACAR say 35% of you do so I'm just thinking of leaving excellent secret messages on this show at 39 minutes that could lead you all to secret riches or will I uh, for the 35% of you you'll never know will you but um, I probably won't or will I no I won't or is this a double bluff it's it's not I really can't be bothered or can I I mean really who, who would know or will it uh, anyway, um, so on this week's show, um, there is going to be uh, that new section with a new jingle as well. Um, plus, I am interviewing Natalie Bloomer from politics.co.uk, who gives us an excellent update on where we're at now with absolutely everything in UK politics. Um, plus, there is a further look at conference season. I am not going to be looking at Brexit. Hooray! That's saved for next week. Boo! Uh, and there's also going to be a bit about why Universal Credit is such a universal shit show. But first up... 
When it comes to a number of issues, such as lack of Brexit plan, the failures of universal credit, nurse staffing issues, etc, 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 ad infinitum, then the government are usually remiss at addressing the elephant in the room properly. But I'm pleased to say that when it comes to the matter of banning the sale and trade of ivory items, they are very much staring that elephant in the face and saying, uh, we've realised that unlike the British public, you never forget, so we'd better sort this out and we're really, really sorry. Environmental Secretary and Living Shrunken Head Michael Gove has announced a consultation into banning a trade in ivory of all ages. And what that means is while it was fine to trade in dead elephant parts if you were under six years old beforehand, no, I'm, I'm only joking, uh, what it means is that previous ban attempts excluded antiques from before 1947, but this would mean a total ban on all ivory goods. There is a ban on UK trade of raw ivory, but we are the current leading exporters of ivory antiques and carvings, which has increased global demand for ivory and is linked to elephant poaching in Africa, which kills 20,000 elephants per year and is rapidly declining their population. The UK exhibiting a total ban would stop ivory demand and it would also help influence how China are going to enforce their proposed ivory ban as well. The consultation will be over 12 weeks and the only obstacles include antique dealers kicking up a proper hissy fit because they say that a ban on pre-1947 ivory antiques won't save a single living elephant. Yeah, sure, but I'm sure you wouldn't like it if someone took your old relatives and paraded their incisors around on a chest of drawers telling everyone it was a sought-after item. Gove has also suggested that there are going to be exemptions to the ban, including items of cultural importance, items with only a small proportion of ivory, and musical instruments, because, hey, fuck you, Dumbo, I don't care if you go extinct as long as we can play chopsticks on a baby grand. The consultation is going to run until 29th of December, so hopefully, from 2018, the only time you'll have tusks in the UK is every time we click our tongues at crappy, crappy political decisions. The total number of pensioners entitled to tax relief has increased by 10%, the Treasury have revealed. Yeah, finally, rich old people are catching a break. Woohoo! That is long overdue. Am I right? God, I'm so sick of these young people getting all the stuff they need everywhere while none of those who've already bought houses and have decent jobs get anything. Yeesh. The pension tax relief gives people earning over £45,000 a year £1 into their pension for every 60p they contribute, whereas lower earners have to pay 80p for the same contribution. Bloody something for nothing culture, eh? Disgusting. This 10% increase amounts to about £5.3 billion, and if the government were to abolish it, they'd wipe out the budget deficit pretty much immediately. There have been rumours that Chancellor Philip Hammond will either be making cuts to the tax relief or slicing existing allowances in the next budget, but at the same time, do the Conservatives want to cut off the only age group that seems to support them? Lord Heseltine warned earlier this year that 2% of Conservative members are dying off every year, which is why I'm already planning a celebratory party for 2067. Woohoo! The Conservative conference was all about clawing back younger voters by offering them not enough money to buy unaffordable houses, or saying how nice they are for not increasing student tuition fees, but instead keeping them at the same high amounts they already are. So if they are keeping young voters away, but are considering telling older, richer voters they'll get pension cuts, this could leave them in a tricky situation. And more importantly, even less time for me to plan my mega-fucking party. I like to pride myself on skipping the bits of TV shows where they say previously on, assuming that I obviously remember everything before then getting 15 minutes into the show, realising I've forgotten everything, have to rewind back to the previously on bit and then successfully wasting 15 minutes of my life I'll never get back. 
I have recently seen the Blade Runner sequel. It's very good. And I was very pleased that the days before I had remembered to watch the first one again and therefore things in the sequel made sense and it was brilliant. Apart from my bladder regularly wishing that the whole experience was about 30 minutes shorter and none of it in the film answered whether or not Theresa May dreams of electric sheep. So um, anyway, what I'm saying is in a very roundabout way or for US listeners in a very T-junction way is that sometimes a little refresher is good. And I don't mean the sweets by Swiss although they are also yums. But with UK politics being in a constant total mess and last year seeing the political scene change more times than Katy Perry's live show costumes, it is useful to stop for a minute and work out where things are at. Conference season is nearly at a close and we'll very soon be embarking onto the next few months of Brexit talks, Parliament and whatever other messes no doubt appear. So I thought this week it would just be good to make it clear what is going on and what has been happening up until now. As you might have noticed on this show, I can occasionally write the jokes, but my analysis is usually limited to how much I've checked Twitter that day. But there are too many questions that need answers in UK politics at the moment for this show to go without. For example, how is it the Conservatives are aiming to build a country that works for everyone when they can barely construct a sentence without being attacked for it by fellow party members or coughing all the way through it? How is it Labour was supposed to fail because they were too unpopular, but now somehow they're very dangerous because they're too popular? And where on earth are the Lib Dems? I mean, has anyone seen them? Have they called? Have they left a message? Have they texted you? Where are they? Are they okay, Guys, let us know. Just check in. For Partly Political Broadcast's previously on section this week, I spoke to the brilliant Natalie Bloomer, who is one of the writers at politics.co.uk. Natalie very, very kindly agreed to let me ask her generally what on earth has been going on and what on earth does it all mean? And I should say thank you to Budgie on Twitter for one of the questions as well. Uh, So hopefully um, all of this chat with Natalie uh, should catch you all up on where we are now in politics in the UK. Um, Although as you hear this, there is every chance that something will have changed and all of this will instantly be irrelevant anyway. Hooray for politics! But either way, um, I found this chat very useful and very informative indeed. Oh, and really sorry, uh, but... excuses. Okay, so there's good news and there's bad news. Uh, The good news is that Natalie on this interview can be heard very, very clearly and was recorded properly. The bad news is that like my interview with Matt Turner a few weeks ago, the recording of me is really awful and not just because I'm normally awful. I mean that it is that, but it also sounds like I'm talking through a Hessian sack, which I mean I was because that is my standard interview outfit, but it's not just that. Um, Seriously though, uh, there has been some update to the recording app that I use that means it likes to go, hey, I see your microphone and then as I hit recording totally ghosts it and then records my voice through my headphones or through my laptop instead. I think I fixed it for next week but for this week you're just going to have to pretend that I interviewed Natalie while talking through some sort of trombone mute. Um, I am sorry but hey maybe see it as me being the unclear voice of politics and Natalie as a clear understandable answerer of politics things. Yeah I mean Why would you have an update that makes things worse? And yes, that is a question that applies both to every computer update ever and most governmental policies for the last seven years. Anyway, look, sorry about that. I hope it's okay. Here is Natalie. Do, do enjoy. Hi, Natalie. Um, Party conference season is now over, thankfully. Um, It feels a lot like, to me, with my kind of limited experience, um, like the political landscape has changed quite a lot especially from about a year ago is that the right thing to say 
Hi. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, there's been big changes over the last year or so. Um, and I think that's actually even backed up by recent polling, which shows that more people now view things like additional NHS spending, more affordable housing. They view those as more of a priority than they did, say, in 2015. So I think that shows a shift. Um, but you can also tell usually by, by the things that the politicians are, are trying to talk about and to get a point across. So when you look at conferences and both parties had what they called big council house policies, the Conservative one didn't actually turn out to be all that big, but it, they were still talking about it. Now, for years, the words council housing just weren't uttered by any leading politicians. You just wouldn't hear it. It was always affordable housing or just help on, to get onto the property ladder. Um, but they're actually starting to talk about council housing again. So I think all of those things together show there is a shift to the left, definitely. I think probably where there hasn't been as much is on something like immigration. So um, that same polling, I think, showed that people uh, now see reducing immigration as less of a priority than they did in 2015, which which sounds great. Um, but I fear that's probably more to do with them thinking that Brexit is just going to solve all their immigration worries uh, rather than people just being more open to immigration. So I think definitely on the whole, we're, we're moving to the left, but not in every area. Sure. And I mean, I guess also there's the thing with the immigration is it's not something that's been mentioned in the last no. few months as much right. as it was for the last couple mm -hmm. of years. Yeah, definitely. So um, in all the other sort of recent elections, immigration's played a massive part. This one, it didn't. And again, I think that comes down to people just thinking that Brexit has kind of answered the immigration question, that it's, it's all going to be dealt with. And for the people that, that want to see immigration reduced drastically, that's going to happen. Um, it probably won't have a massive impact because it's, uh, uh, obviously there's huge immigration ever still from all other parts of the world. So they might not get what they're hoping for, actually. Um, so I think depending on what happens post-Brexit, we could see immigration coming back up as an issue. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly it, it's not being spoken about in the same way that it was. Um, but equally, you still don't hear many people talking about it in, in very positive terms. You know, Jeremy Corbyn has a much warmer language, but you don't hear him announcing sort of that, you know, we're happy with the levels of immigration or anything like that. That It's still a very difficult issue for for politicians to talk about, I think. Yeah, I noticed he was quite vague. I mean, he doesn't say swarm, thankfully, but, you know, he's quite no, vague otherwise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but because that's the other thing that Corbyn had said, and he announced, you know, we are the mainstream now. And I, yeah. I um, you know, I, from, from my point of view, it still doesn't feel like centre ground is, I don't know if it's quite centre again. I know it's such no. a weird and vague thing to say. Do you think we're back to centre ground being centred? Is that quite a... <laughs> Wherever um, that is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it's so difficult to, to place people on the political spectrum. Like, people have such varied views on, on things. I know in the run-up to the election, I was talking to people in, in different areas in the Midlands to get a feel for, for what they were thinking and, and who they were planning to vote for. And I spoke to this one young couple who um, were talking about just everything really um and one of them had been a young teenage mum who was then working in um for a local council the other was a warehouse worker and their views range from things like they thought trump was great to thinking that 
um, immigration was great because they worked with lots of immigrants and found them very nice and hardworking. Um, they thought the death penalty should come back, but they were really pro more public spending. You know, that their, their opinions were so vast across the political spectrum. It was so hard to pin them down. And I think most people are probably a bit like that. You know, most people aren't fully left or fully right. They've got a, a, a varied sort of um, uh, group of positions and beliefs. So it's always quite hard, I think, to know what the centre is. I guess in terms of the parties, the, the centre ground is kind of, if you think of it sort of very much as it sounds, is, is in the middle of, <laughs> of the yeah. far left and the far right. I mean, what else? It's very difficult, isn't it, to know yeah. what that centre ground is exactly. I wouldn't say Corbyn is yet completely the centre. I think there's probably still a lot of the country that don't... Um, you know, that don't see his his views as matching their own. But it's, he's certainly more, his positions are certainly more mainstream than a lot of people thought they would be, certainly. Sure. It's, um, I'm just sort of thinking as well that obviously you need public spending to go up in order to have the death penalty, otherwise you wouldn't be able to afford it. Um, but, <laughs> it does, does make sense. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's sort of that, uh, for years we had a kind of centre ground that was slightly right wing and now, uh, I, you know, and I, I keep hearing how Corbyn's policies aren't that radical for lots of other parts of the world. So it's sort of, it's, yeah. it's very hard to pinpoint where the centre ground actually is. I wanted to ask as well, because we, we've now finished the conference season, or I think we nearly have. I think we've got, is it Green Party and SNP left to go? I can't remember. Yes, terrible, yeah, I think it? they yeah. are. Yeah, I don't think we've had those yet. They, they yeah, no, I like that like, none of us have a clue. Who knows? No, um, no. The big ones have gone. <laughs> and, um, but how important are these conferences? Because like you were saying, you are talking to people with nuanced views. How, how much do you think normal people care about these conferences? Are they useful to politicians? Are they useful to... What are they, why, why do they still happen? Um, well, I think um, in terms of the party, they're quite important, I think. Um, I think it gives them a time to sort of group together, assess where they're at. Um, I think those big conference speeches, again, are important to the party because it kind of sets the tone for where they, how they go forward. So if you have a leader that has a really good, um, inspiring speech that's well received, that gives the whole party a bit of confidence going forward in the messages that, that they're putting out there. Likewise, if you have a disaster like Theresa May did this week, then, you know, the whole party is going to be on a bit of a, a downer and there's going to be lots of talk about their leadership ability and all that kind of thing so I think it does have an impact definitely on, on in terms of the party and I think although I don't think most people out there in the public sort of pay much attention to conference speeches I mean I doubt anyone was sitting Sort of set their recorder to to watch it, but I think <laughs> I that. Um, no, that'd be really sad. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, I, I think they pick up on it definitely through things like social media and and and, and the press. You know that they'll they'll get a sense. Even if you 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 don't watch any conference speeches, you'll know this week that Theresa May had a nightmare, um, and you probably got a sense last week or the week before that that Corbyn did fairly well. So although it you know people won't be listening to every detail, again it does just. It just sets a tone, I think, for, for the months going forward. Sure. And I guess that's part of what we were saying earlier, that the political rounds kind of changed. We know now that Labour seems to be, uh, you know, the conference has kind of boosted the idea that they're on the rise and there's mm -hmm. so much boosted the idea that Theresa May is not yeah. doing very yeah. well at all. <laughs> no, absolutely. So in a sense, I think conference season has just sort of embedded the ideas that and the feelings that we had before we went into conference. Like you say, Corbyn is on the rise. He's feeling triumphant after the election. 
all the positivities around him and Theresa May is just on a downward spiral. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you think it's do you think it's feasible that she's going to keep her job? I mean, how long? What is your, because this is one of the things that, is, especially in the last few years of politics, I cannot tell what no. is going to happen now. <laughs> no, <laughs> I absolutely can't tell if she's going to stay. If she goes, and if she goes, who on earth would replace her? Exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've had Grant Shapp out this morning touring the studios, talking about. Um, how he's talking to other MPs and and some cabinet ministers, he says, about um, uh, the need to get rid of her. I think they need 48 MPs to to sort of sign to say that, to to force a a vote of no confidence, which would obviously lead to a leadership challenge. I think, I mean, have they got enough people that that will push for that? Possibly. Who knows? Um, And, you know, like we said, by the time this goes out next week, she could be gone. Or she could still be hanging on. Who knows? But I think um, I think the problem they've got, obviously, is Brexit. So they've got a very limited time uh, to negotiate the Brexit deal. Uh, they've already called an election, which which ate into that time. And now we've got a possible leadership election, which is going to eat into even more time. So it's not it's not a, it's not looking great for the party it's not looking great for may it's just it just looks like a mess really and and it doesn't look good to the public i don't think the situation they're in now and i mean if they had a leadership election then say a new leader i guess there's a chance that they'd be forced to then have another general election because there wouldn't be a mandate for that leader well yes that's that's obviously the possibility so you had may that came in and said that she wanted to go to the people to get a mandate for her for her um, agenda and and look what happened. I don't think the party are going to want another election anytime soon um, after what happened last time, and I don't think the country really particularly wants an election. Um, so I don't know. I mean, like you say, anything can, is possible now. It is, <laughs> it's like who 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 would you know guess what's going to happen in the next week even because it's just there's just so much rapid change there's so much uncertainty and like you say who who replaces her so there isn't that big beast that that the whole party's sort of behind to take over now and obviously the first person that comes to mind is boris johnson um but i think he's probably upset a lot of people in the party in in the recent weeks um we even heard some mps even conservative mps calling um for him to be sacked over the Libya comments that he mm. made at conference. So I, I don't think he's going to have as much backing as perhaps he'd hoped. Yeah, um, I, I, just, I, I think I, I'm sort of personally terrified about sort of seeing how the foreign press reports on him, the idea of someone like that as in charge of the country then having to do, you know, meet with foreign mm-hmm. leaders. Yeah, yeah. It, it I doesn't mean, feel it, like a clever strategy. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And I, and I think even how he behaved um, before May's speech in Florence, you know, the, the articles he wrote trying to just overshadow her at every step, I don't think it played well with much of the party either. I mean, ideally for them, I think after the election, they just wanted to get through Brexit, get through this next sort of year or two, and then look at replacing her having a fresh start, you know, going forward with whatever deal or they do or don't do, as may be the case, I think, um, that, you know, they can have a fresh start then. This just looks chaotic. It, it doesn't, you know, it's not inspiring confidence in anyone, is it, that, that they know what they're doing. If they can't even run the party, let alone, you know, see us through Brexit. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's not many people really lined up to take her position, I don't think, that are, that are going to have much of an impact. 
Yeah, I mean, because one of the things I don't know, if, you know, in, in in your position at politics, okay, UK, do you find it as a, you know, as as a, as a viewer of this, I find it amazing to see the Conservative Party in such disarray because one of the things that people have always said about them is, oh, they always sort of pull together and they always, you know, they always seem like a mm-hmm. unit. And especially when yeah. we had all the Labour infighting of previous years, people were looking to Conservatives thinking that would never happen. And have you ever kind of seen this before? <laughs> Well, Brexit has always been a cause of division in the party, but never to this um, extent. I think um, Brexit is the cause of all this. Um, if, you, if you look at every step of the way since the referendum was called, um, this is just, it, it comes back to Brexit, every problem they've had. Um, so I think how, you know, it's quite, the way this has been brewing for so many years, the issue of Brexit, um, and now all those Brexiteers in the Conservative Party have got what they wanted, and it could actually turn out to be the thing that destroys their own party. You know, it's so huge, it has that potential. Um, if it goes badly wrong, they could be destroyed for, for years, if not decades, um, afterwards. Um, so it's quite ironic, really, that it's Conservative ministers that have pushed for this, or Conservative members, sorry, that have pushed for this, and um, it's, it's turning out to be just a disaster for them. And do you think Labour are going to have a similar problem? Because, I mean, it was, you know, Labour feel really strong right now. It feels uh-huh. like if there's a general election next few weeks, which I personally hope there isn't, but, you know, if there is, <laughs> then, um, uh, and I don't mean to put it on Labour, but more because like, I think it's exhausting. You kind of feel like we need at least a, a yeah. year's break between yeah. each one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. I just sort of <laughs> come on. Um, but if there was one, it feels like they, they'd easily get it this time around, or at least mm. have a, a much better chance. Um, what... What could possibly be their issues now? Is, is Brexit mm-hmm. the main problem for them as well? Obviously, they've got um, I think things, yeah. it depends how long we have until another election, I think. So if, if the Conservatives really kind of um, group together and try and hold off an election for as long as possible, I think the risk to Labour then is that they lose some of their momentum it's a pun, sorry, I can't think of a better word. <laughs> um, but, you know, if, if they lose some of that positivity that's around them, the energy that they've got right now, um, you know, if, if it's a few years down the line before an election happens, then there's a lot that can kind of, uh, a lot of divisions that can open up within the party over that time. Um, Brexit being a, a key issue, obviously. It depends how the negotiations go. It depends, on, you know, there's so many factors that, that could come into it. Obviously, their position still isn't, overly clear on Brexit. I mean, I have to say, I think probably overall, um, they're probably playing it quite right. I think they're probably, principally, you know, it's probably not the best position, but um, I think politically, they probably have got it right just to kind of sit on the fence on this and sort of, you know, every now and then they will come out with a few sort of uh, strong words about Brexit, but they're not coming down overly harsh on either sort of on the hard or the soft Brexit issues. Um, and I think probably for them that's, that's probably the best thing to do because if it is a, a huge disaster, they can say, well, we weren't supportive of the government's position. You know, we had our own position. They didn't follow it. And if it turns out to be OK, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> looking on the positive side, um, then then they can say, well, we didn't object to it, we didn't put, we didn't stop it from happening, you know. So I think probably for them, 
they're in about the right position, but that doesn't mean that that resolves the divisions within the party. There are still those people who are very firmly in the Remain camp and want us to stay in the single market and all that kind of thing. And then there are those that, you know, whose constituents firmly voted to leave the EU and, and they don't want us to be. So it could still be an issue for them, but nowhere near as much, I don't think, as it is for the Conservatives. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, we'll be back with Natalie and Muffled Knee in a minute, but first... We all know the phrase, two wrongs make a right. But what most people don't realise is that sometimes several rights make a very, very wrong. Uh, or, you know, just a really crappy roundabout. Or again, for US listeners, a crappy T-junction. Sometimes, I mean, combining lots of good ideas together just makes a terrible mess. I mean, for example, Batman versus Superman, which took two very well-known and very liked superheroes, put them together and created something four times as shit as it should have been. Or Walker's Cheese Cucumber and Salad Cream Crisps, which added three perfectly decent ingredients together and then tasted like what I imagine licking the pipes in a Savlon factory would be like. Another perfect example, however, is Universal Credit. Created in 2010 by former Work and Pensions Secretary and grumpy chode Ian Duncan Smith, the idea was that it would combine income support, job seekers allowance, employment and support allowance, housing benefit, child tax credit and working tax credit all into one handy, handy payment, supposedly making benefits more simple. This one-does-everything payment would get paid directly into claimants' banks so they can then use it to cover all the benefits that they're eligible for. And the idea was that you can claim universal credit if you're in or out of work, but your payments reduce the more you earn, so all working towards the idea that no one ends up in a situation where it's more worth their while to claim benefits than find work. Unless, of course, you're Ian Duncan Smith, in which case, why work to make anything better for anyone when your in-laws have bought you a mansion and you can spend all your earnings on shitty, expensive breakfasts? But despite combining all those good things together, Universal Credit is a big old heap of dung. For a start, it's currently five years behind schedule as it was meant to be implemented back in 2011. But there were a series of problems, including a 2.4 billion IT system failure. And that's not just one where you can say, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? Ian Duncan Smith blamed civil servants for that mistake because, of course, the person behind a system that enforces extra responsibility on claimants can't possibly take blame for his own screw-ups, can he? 
But despite all this, Universal Credit started rolling out very slowly, like me out of a comfy chair after a Sunday lunch, to about five job centres a month as of May last year, with now about 600,000 people currently using it. But the government have decided to go ahead with an accelerated rollout, like me out of a comfy chair after I've had booze in my Sunday lunch and I can't stand up properly, so it'll now be 50 job centres a month from this month. But Labour, Lib Dem and in fact a lot of Conservative MPs as well are now calling for the government to halt these plans with even former Prime Minister John Major warning today that if they go ahead with this they risk opening their door to the return of a nightmare and he should know what that looks like as he had Edwina Curry round his house several times. But why is this a problem? Well, for a start, all claimants have a minimum 42-day wait, which often translates to 60 days before they get their first payment when they move to universal credit. This leaves people who are on little to no income without any cash at all for six weeks, something that has led to cases of eviction as landlords are no longer paid housing benefits direct to them. It's led to a rise in food bank use, a rise in use of expensive credit loans and many, many cases of distress. Now, the government have addressed this with Work and Pensions Secretary and man whose surname appropriately matches the sound that most people make when they listen to him, David Gork, has said that people waiting for payments would now be able to access cash up front to help them until their first universal credit payment. But this cash would be a loan and it has to be repaid in six months. Yes, like a payday loan company, only while they don't have any interest in the repayments, they also have little interest in the people that are applying's lives. Plus, when they apply, claimants have to prove they need this loan to pay bills, buy food or prevent illnesses, you know, like everyone normally needs money for because that's kind of what money's for. And about half of everyone in Universal Credit so far has had to apply for these loans, something that David Gork says is good because it shows they're getting the help they need, and everyone else says, no, David, it shows your shitty Universal Credit is leaving people absolutely fucked. It's like you saying that someone taking the plasters you've offered them after you've kicked the crap out of them is a good example that they're getting the help they really need, rather than it obviously being a clear case of you needing to stop going around being a massive psychopath. As well as this gap in payment, there are a ton of other universal issues. Private landlords are no longer taking on tenants on universal credit as they say the risk of them not paying rent is too high. Housing associations have warned that the accumulated costs of bad debts run up by tenants on universal credit could affect their house building plans. And claimants say universal credit is really overly complex and confusing, especially if you don't have online access, which how could you have if you haven't had any fucking money for six weeks? It's like a benefits version of when a new pair of scissors is put in a packet that you need scissors to open. Plus, the Resolution Foundation think tank says that due to reductions in work allowances brought in by former Chancellor and total skin job George Osborne means that 2.5 million low-income working households will actually be more than £1,000 a year worse off on universal credit than they were before and that many families who are on tax credits now won't be eligible for universal credit at all. And you start to realise that this whole shit show is even more damaging to people than Batman versus Superman. And trust me, that film really hurt me quite a lot. I mean, really? Martha? That's what you're going to hang the whole film on? Fucking Martha? I've struggled to find current figures, but just over a year ago, Universal Credit had cost more than £16 billion to implement, which was already £4 billion more than originally planned. The Conservatives are insistent that Universal Credit works, and they say the rollout will continue as planned, being completed by 2022, because it now seems it's their party trademark to blindly press ahead with big, expensive failures that cause damage, far beyond caring whether they actually work or not. I mean, honestly, with Universal Credit and Brexit, it's a wonder that the Conservatives' next plan won't be a remake of Waterworld, followed by a nationalised chocolate teapot factory, and, I don't know, any sort of trade deal with Donald Trump. Oh, wait. Oh, oh dear. And now, back to Natalie. 
Yeah, it's because I, I I think um, I went to see John McDonald's we talking uh, during the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and uh, and I think he one of the things he said that I found quite funny was he said. Uh, it's very hard to be opposition when you don't know what you're in opposition to. And I sort of yeah. wondered if, if their Brexit stance is very much a, a mirror of, of the fact that the Conservative Brexit stance is very unclear as well. Yeah, you know, quite possibly. I think, you know, neither party has been, has been all that clear, possibly because you don't really, I guess, you go into these negotiations, things happen and your position kind of changes as, as the negotiation progresses, I guess. Um, but no, neither's been clear, and I think that's probably because they not. There's very few politicians I think that have got or have had a very good grasp of exactly what a huge, um, particularly at the beginning of all this. You know, you had David Davis talking about how it was all quite easy, and now he's saying, "Oh yeah, this is not quite so easy actually." <laughs> We've been in it for a little while, you know. There's, 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 I think it's taken them quite a long time to realise just what a huge task it is. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think either party really... Well, I guess because nobody really thought it was going to happen. Nobody thought that the referendum was going to go as it did. So nobody prepared for this in any real sense. And now we're in the middle of it and, you know, they're trying to fumble their way through as they go along, I think. Oh, it's so terrifying. I, it really yeah. feels to me like when I was a kid, when I realised that adults don't know everything. It was yeah. that sort of... <laughs> You, you just know. want your dad to come home and sort it all out, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, I was going to ask, like, do you think that the uh, do, do you think it'll have any effects on Labour that the Conservatives now seem to be offering kind of light or watered down versions of, of some of Labour's policies? Is, can that have any effect, or do you think people will just look at that and go? Oh, that's just a rubbish version of what Labour. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, that that that's exactly what I think the risk is there for the Conservatives. I think um, Jeremy Corbyn, much of his manifesto and and the proposals he's put forward are pretty bold. Actually, they're quite radical um, in terms of where we were at before. You know, if you look back to two or three years ago, the policies are um, a, a lot bolder than than what we were hearing before. So, so the Conservatives to come along and say well, do you know what? He's offering you free tuition. We're just going to not increase it. <laughs> you know, he's not a big selling point. You know, you're going to be paying exactly the same as what you are now. <laughs> it's not <laughs> a great, you know, who's going to go out and vote for that? It's not a big vote winner. Um, and likewise with housing, you know, you've got Corbyn sort of promising to build all these houses and the Conservatives come up with the, some complicated policy where there's going to be a pot of money and councils can bid for it. And, it, you know, it just doesn't have that catchy... Um, you know, tone to it that people are going to remember and think, oh, yeah, this guy stands for free tuition, um, loads of more council houses and, and all these other issues. It, it, it doesn't have that same ring to it. And all you actually end up doing is looking like you are trying to just ape another party. And in doing that, you're just reinforcing the idea that they've got good ideas. You know, if you have to nick their ideas, <laughs> they must be good ones. So it's, <laughs> I think you either have to go the full hog and sort of match their policies or better them, or you just don't really go there because otherwise it just looks like, like I say, like you're just aping what they're, what they're doing. Yeah. It sort of feels, it feels really oddly like a reverse of 2015 when people were saying Labour's policies were like watered down conservative yeah, ones. Yeah. And yeah. we're now in a weird yeah. mirror. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also in 2015, the conservative policies were watered down UKIP ones when it comes to things like <laughs> immigration and stuff. Now they've gone the other way and they're sort of, taking from Labour. I think, you know, you're always going to get a bit of that. If you see that the public are responding well to policy, you're going to want to try and tap into that. Um, but doing it half-heartedly like that doesn't really, I don't think you really get anywhere. 
Yeah, I suppose in a way, it's uh, you know, it's better to have the policies that you, there's some conviction behind, kind of regardless yeah, of what they absolutely. are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and what are the um, what do you think the kind of uh, battleground areas are going to be for the next term? Because housing seems to be now a really big issue from the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, is is that going to be one of the main things we see? I mean, obviously, who um, knows? But you know, what, what's going yeah, to be, yeah. what, what do you kind of get the sense of uh, the next few months are going to bring in terms of uh, areas for, yeah. for PMGs and things? I think housing um, housing will will definitely be um, I think high up. On the agenda, um, I, whether or not it's a battleground is difficult because it, it's such a vast issue. So you haven't got one specific sort of policy or, or something that's happening that can be changed quite quickly. There's no quick solution to it. So it's not as if we, can, the Labour Party, can push for the Conservatives to make a, an instant change to improve the situation. So unfortunately, issues like housing tend to sort of just drag on and on with these sort of um, proposals that are put forward and we say by 2022 we'll see this and then we get 2022 and it's still not happening you know and then we keep going on like that something like universal credit which has been a big issue is much more specific and it's something that can be stopped and it can be influenced so I think certainly in the next few months we're going to be hearing a lot on universal credit especially as it, it the rollout continues and more and more people are in, in, affected by the impact of it I think we've already seen some Tory MPs um, speaking out against it, and I think there'll be more as their constituents start coming to them with with problems about it. Yes, there's now been quite. A, the Labour MPs have have asked them to uh, to halt the the rollout, yeah. and then the, and you said Tory MPs have as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, and they've actually said they're not going to do that. What they've said is that they will provide a, a sort of an initial payment, which actually they haven't made clear is actually a loan. So they will loan some of the money that the uh, claimants are entitled to anyway they'll give them that money to sort of see them through the initial sort of six-week wait that people are, are experiencing before they get any money um but then of course what happens is once their money comes it's going to be short because they've got to pay back the loan so then it's just putting people you know it's not solving the problem in any way um it's just you know pushing it a bit further along really um so universal credit, yeah, is, is a huge issue. But then there's, there's so many things that could become a huge crisis for the Conservative Party pretty much at any time. Yeah. Um, so if you if you think about the, the, the cuts to the public sector and, and how they're playing out, it's really this year, I think, and next year is when we'll really feel that. So for the people that are most vulnerable and the people at the bottom, they experienced it quite early on. So those cuts were, you know, they were felt very early. For the For most people who are sort of in the middle... They haven't had to experience it in any direct way. And I think that's starting to change. So if you look at the health service, year every year now we're hearing the winter crisis is going to be the worst on record. I presume it will be the same this year. If you look at prisons, you know, we've had numerous riots this year. There's staff shortages, people being locked up for really long periods of the day without getting any exercise. Um, there's all these issues where there's been so many cuts and it's starting to really be felt that they could cause big problems for the Conservatives at any point, really. There could become a prison crisis that they have to deal with immediately. There could be a huge NHS crisis that they have to deal with. So I think there's lots of things, domestic issues, when before you even look at the Brexit <laughs> um, problems. So, yeah, lots that could happen, I think. I mean, I, and I, God forbid, I don't, I, I can't say that I've ever felt sorry for Theresa May, but part of it does feel like, <laughs> you mentioned all that, it does feel like she's now having to deal with everything the Cameron government did yeah, that's now yeah. having an effect. Now, you know, Universal Credit yeah. and Duncan Smith 
baby yeah. and he's gone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you kind of look yeah, at... they did. I mean, if you look at it that way, they, those, those got, you know, Cameron and Osborne sort of walked away and uh, now, you know, in case of Osborne doing lots of jobs, very well paid. Um, and I'm sure Cameron gets paid very well for whatever he's doing. Um, and the rest of the country are kind of picking up the pieces, really. And, yeah, Theresa May didn't inherit a great... Um, you know, a great situation. However, she was part of that government for a long time. So she is, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's, she's equally sort of um, responsible for the, the position we're in now. She was a senior member. She was, you know, the Home Secretary for a long time. So she was a senior member of government with them. It's not as if she's sort of come out of nowhere and trying to pick up the pieces, I don't think. Sure, yeah, uh, don't get me wrong. I don't feel sorry for her. Uh, do you think um, do you think that we're now like just firmly in two party politics forevermore? Because it really feels like uh, I mean, as you said earlier, didn't even remember if it was Green Party uh, yeah. conference coming up or not. But you know, is, is, are we? Um, you know, the Lib Dems feel really lost, and yeah. uh, you know, it, I, it just feels like it's Labour Tory, Labour Tory kind of like how it used to be. Yeah, yeah, I think we're we're going to be that way for some time. I think the Liberal Democrats were so um, damaged by the coalition, which was all so predictable. I mean, when they went into that coalition, for the Conservatives, you know, the policies that they were putting out were what people expected from the Conservatives. You know, that's what they voted for. With the Liberal Democrats, they were signing up to things, you know, like the bedroom tax and all that kind of thing. They were putting their name to those policies that were just so against what people that voted for the Liberal Democrats were expecting, and of course, tuition fees. Um, and so that, that does damage an electorate. You know, it People want nobody really trusts politicians, but you want to have some level of uh, that you're that you know what you're voting for. And I think um, you know we saw that at the last election and and the one before that, that the Liberal Democrats have been badly hurt. And although I think lots of people thought their Brexit position would kind of give them a bit of a boost this time, that doesn't seem to have happened. Um, and I doubt it's it's going to happen going forward again. They've got. You know, there's there's nothing it's inspiring happening there. You didn't see anything at the conference that made you think, oh yeah, they're in with a chance of sort of gaining more support. It just, you know, it, I think they've got a long way to go before before they're back in the game, really. And, and do you and, think and, any and also other? UKIP. Oh yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so UKIP again, they've had a really bad um, couple of years or year year and a half. You know, so. Um, uh, they had a disaster under Paul Nuttall. That was just <laughs> one long joke, really. Um, and and now, you know, who really knows the new leader? What do they know of them? They've lost, I think, you know, love him or hate him. Nigel Farage was a character that kind of, he he managed to get their message across in a way that people liked. They He was sort of um, a big name, if you like, within the country, and, and he managed to do that. Whereas I don't think there's many other people in in the party that have got that potential to to um, to gain the popularity that he did. And and also, you've got all the usual problems with UKIP and all the sort of stories that come out about the um, crazy ideas. I think weren't they talking at the um, the other day when they were announcing the leadership? There was somebody there talking about how. It was women. Uh, the lack of religion in the country is down to mothers not enforcing it in the home, or something. I mean, oh just, yeah, you know, it's just so dated and, and ridiculous. You know, I don't think um, they've got a long way to go as well. I think before they're sort of back to the levels 
that they were, if they ever will be. I don't, you know, they seem to be a bit of a nothing party again now. Yeah, yeah, I think they, yeah, it was a bishop discussing the Birmingham forcing Christmas to be called Winterville again when, when that's never happened. It's never <laughs> no, happened. No, you know. never said that. <laughs> I know. It's uh, ridiculous. Um, yeah. so, and, and do, do you find all this, like, just, you know, working at uh, politics, Kenny, okay, are you finding this exciting or exhausting? Or, but I, mean, I don't know how you guys cope. I mean, I get to do this once a week for, for the listeners. <laughs> I don't know how you, every day, t- within 10 minutes, something is different. Yeah, I mean... A bit of both, really. I think we're lucky that we don't sort of, we're not a rolling news site, so we don't have to report every little detail as it happens. Um, We kind of get to pick out the issues that we want to focus on. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's great to always have something to write about. I mean, (laughs) a couple of years ago, you know, over the summer, you'd be like, oh, God, give me a story. And now it's like, even over the summer, there's there's stuff happening. There's there's lots to talk about. There's lots to write about. Um, But it can get a bit depressing as well. When you're constantly writing about what a disaster everything is, um, <laughs> um, you don't get to just sort of turn it all off and, and forget about it for a while, sadly. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's exciting. It's interesting to have something to talk about and write about. Um, but, yeah, no, it's not always positive, sadly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You just want one quiet week would be really yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Where something then, nice happens. <laughs> yeah, just, just one, one nice week. I don't just know what it would be. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, put that, we'll, we'll start a government petition, I think. And just, yeah. Can there please be something nice for a week? Yes. <laughs> <That'd be great. laughs> um, and, um, and the very last question for you. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Um, no, I just great. wanted to ask, uh, sort of, other than yourself and Project Sokoli UK, obviously, um, who <laughs> obviously. else would you recommend um, listeners follow or read? You know, have you got any favourites that you'd like to, to, to check out for political analysis? Is there anyone we should be? Yeah, I mean, there's loads of people. I think it's really important to sort of read as widely as you can. So so don't just get your news from one place. Don't get your analysis from one place because there are so many different views and opinions. It's always really good to, to get, you know, as much as you can from right across the spectrum. Um, personally, I really like Stephen Bush at the New Statesman. He always gives really, you know, clear, easy-to-understand analysis of what's happening. Um uh, Dawn Foster on housing is great at The Guardian. I really like her. Um, oh, there's so many people right across. Um, uh, Sean Norris, who's a freelance writer that writes for us regularly and, and also for other places. She's great on women's rights and, and violence against women and issues around that. Um, you know, I enjoy reading Owen Jones on the left and, and then, you know, commentary on the right as well. I, I, I think it's good just to get a good idea of what everyone's arguments are and what the positions are right across the spectrum I think I think you mentioned that actually recently in one of your um episodes when you were talking to Matt Turner at Mm. Evolve Politics I think you were talking about you know afterwards about the need to sort of get a wide range and I think that's right and I think people like Evolve Politics and Navarro have got every much right to have a place on you know in that media space as anybody else and I think it's important and I think it's good actually that they're there um you know, there's been some issues around the canary, and I think, um, you know, that there are some problems there. And I think you, you've got to make sure that you've got integrity and that you're reporting correctly. Nobody wants incorrect reports or misleading reports because it doesn't help anybody's position. Um, but I like the fact that, you know, we've got some sort of... I think if you're going to have a media landscape where you've got some very obviously right-wing... Um, 
publications, then it's only right that there should be some on the other side as well. And I think that, you know, it just helps to, to create a bit of balance across the whole landscape. But obviously it'd be nice if everyone was a little bit less, um, what's the word? Sensationalist, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little yeah. Bit sensationalist, I think, would help If everyone. they were, what would you get to talk about at their conference? So, you know, well, exactly. you've got to figure it that way. <laughs> <laughs> They've got to keep going somehow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you lots to Natalie for that brilliant update. And hopefully uh, you should be all caught up before we embark on UK politics season 6007. Uh, I hope my muffled voice wasn't too annoying. Um, but... Natalie stuff was absolutely brilliant um, and you can find her on Twitter at Natalie underscore Bloomer and you can read lots of her articles at politics.co.uk as well so I do recommend you do that ASAP and the people that Natalie recommends are Dawn Foster who you can find on Twitter at Dawn H Foster uh, and she also writes for several publications including The Guardian uh, Stephen K Bush writes mainly for The New Statesman and can be found on Twitter at Stephen KB that's Stephen with a PH not a V and Sean Harris is not on Twitter but again you can find her articles in lots of places and that is online places obviously i'm not sure if you can find them say in a rainforest or an ancient aztec temple but to be fair i haven't checked so i could be wrong uh, i'm aware that i did a little online poll on facebook and twitter recently asking uh people in the groups there what you wanted to hear and you uh overwhelmingly and by that i mean about seven people more than the other options wanted me to interview someone about the catalonian independence election um hopefully i will be very soon uh with everything still so up in the air over there it's been quite hard to pin anyone down for a chat with a podcast when they are quite strictly keeping an eagle eye on goings on um but i do have someone who i should be able to talk to in a couple of weeks so hopefully that will come up soon um if you do have any other areas you'd like me to interview someone on or someone you'd like me to interview then please as always do drop me a line at parpolbro on twitter the partly political broadcast group on facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com or like the blue capped cordon bleu songbird why not convey your message in a series of feet taps head bobs and dancing and hopefully i'll find an ornithologist to translate it either that or you'll at least find a lovely blue capped cordon bleu songbird mate and then you'll have their chair sounds to listen to instead of this podcast and it won't really bother you whether i get that person on as an interview or not email is as always a lot easier it's september october so it stands to reason that right now it's conference season that's political conferences not conference pairs although if you plant them around now they'll be really nice for next august if you like pairs that is and if you don't, then maybe don't do that. Oh, conference season, conference season. We are now in the last week of conference season with the SNP and Green Party conferences underway. Um, so far at the Scottish National Party conference, uh, leader Nicola Sturgeon confirmed that her government will pay the so-called settled status fee of any EU citizen working in the public sector in Scotland, uh, before then calling Brexit a developing disaster, which I think is a bit unfair of her, because as according to current Brexit negotiations, it doesn't really seem to be developing very much at all. It's very much a stagnant disaster, I would say. Um, meanwhile, at the Greens conference, co-leader Jonathan Bartley has told the party that they will stick up for the little guy, which is very good news for anyone only making small fireworks night decorations, and that the Greens have changed the political weather on issues from fracking to austerity, which I think sounds a lot like they're responsible for climate change, which I thought they were against. Anyway, um, I will be looking in depth uh, more at both conferences next week, once they have both finished, but until then, let's take a little quick look at the rest of last week's Conservative conference, as there are a few more moments and comments of note worth mentioning. And no, 
I don't want to talk about classic Hammer horror villain Jacob Rees-Mogg's patronising comments on how it is right to be generous to EU citizens in the UK because how lucky we are that three million brave souls crossed a continent to a country where they didn't speak the language to work hard and take on jobs. I mean, I'm pleased what he said is a sort of favourable sentiment sort of to EU citizens in the UK, but really, how fucking patronising? They didn't know the language? Yeah, just because we Brits take pride in learning to point and shout at things and demand chips in every restaurant we go to doesn't mean other European countries take the same attitude towards foreign languages. Though, I suppose, to be fair, no one has spoken the same language as Rees-Mogg since Chaucer. Nor is it particularly worth mentioning how Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt wore a Tate and Lyle lanyard while discussing childhood obesity in Britain, because, let's be fair, Hunt is so painfully unaware of anything to do with healthcare, it wouldn't surprise me if he lectured on how the NHS needed to make more cuts after using £44,000 of taxpayers' money to pay for a new bathroom in his house. Oh, wait, he did do that. He did actually do that. Then again, to be fair, Jeremy Hunt does need a decent bathroom to cope with the torrent of hypocritical shit that he churns out on a daily basis. Instead, what is worth looking at is International Development Secretary Priti Patel's comments on how Brexit is an opportunity for widespread deregulation. Deregulation could lead to less workers' rights, less health and safety care, and, well, the sort of reckless obsession with profit over people that led to the Grenfell Tower fire. Patel has previously mentioned that she thinks working time protection should be scrapped of self-employed lorry drivers. Yeah, that sounds great, pretty. I mean, if you've seen the way that some of them drive on the M1 at night at the moment, I'm pretty sure that keeping those lorry drivers going for 48 hours will make that even better. While there are some arguments for removing some red tape that leads to unnecessary paperwork and admin, there are also a number of areas where cutting red tape would make life much, much worse. Also, how would you do Indiana Jones airplane lines on maps or, well, you know, tape red things so they look seamless? Another thing worth looking at is Home Secretary Amber Rudd's proposals for new laws on criminalising extremist content online. Um, They have already been hugely criticised as incredibly dangerous proposals. Amber Rudd stated that anyone repeatedly watching extremist criminal content online could get up to 15 years in jail, though I'm not sure if that would include anyone that sees repeats of her terrifying authoritarian speeches. Open rights group have said that this sort of legislation would cause problems for journalists investigating such matters, but also may stop people tempted by extremism from coming forward as they'd have to admit what they'd seen online and then would be immediately criminalised. The government's current independent review of terrorism legislation, QC Max Hill, has recently stated that the government need fewer terrorism laws, not more, but it is highly likely that Amber Rudd will have him locked up by the end of the year for such extremist views. And lastly, uh, worth looking at is Theresa May's speech. Now, aside from the coughing, pranking and very unstable and unstrong set, it contained more balls than a soft play area pit. To be honest, as with a lot of what May says, I kind of forget most of it seconds after she said it, but the only bit sticking in my head was her apology for the snap election campaign, and really, I wish she'd just left it there and walked off. She mentioned a number of supposed achievements from her government, including the increase in nurses, which is true since 2010, but she then didn't mention the first decrease in registered nurses over the last year for the first time since 2008. Then May mentioned free childcare, doubling for children three to four years old, but then didn't mention that nurseries won't have the places or funding to cope with this. And then May also mentioned the National Living Wage, which the Living Wage Foundation says isn't a living wage. She talks about how the Hillsborough families are finally seeing justice served, something that she really can't take any credit for. And she mentioned how the survivors of the child sex abuse inquiry are now on the long road to truth, despite the fact the inquiry she commissioned has totally stalled and is ignoring the needs of those very survivors. 
After all that, she then told the conference never to let the left have a monopoly on compassion. And I guess that's probably because she's already planning to sell bits of it to virgin care. It's generally amazing that with everything else that happened to her during that speech, that her pants didn't immediately ignite on fire as well. But apart from all the usual hubris, there was little actual content. Ed Miliband's energy price cap fee has been plagiarised by her and reused, as was Corbyn's pledge for an opt-out on organ donation, and part of me wondered if Theresa May was just going to finish her speech by getting everyone to sing Jerusalem. But the one thing Theresa May did mention, and there was content on, was housing. She pledged to renew the building of council housing by making £2 billion available. But £2 billion really won't help at all. In 2010, George Osborne cut annual capital funding for housing associations from £3 billion to just £450 million, which is the sort of slash they'd be concerned about putting in a saw film. This meant housing associations stopped the model of social rent and instead moved to affordable rent, which, like affordable housing, is 80% of unaffordable market rents. So still, fucking unaffordable. So with social rent, new build housing only being around a 1000 per year, affordable rent housing are taking most of the tenants. But as the affordable isn't really affordable, the costs are stupidly high, and that means the government have had to pay billions in housing benefits to landlords because of their own lack of house building. Sajid Javid pledged £7 billion to the sector over five years, and now Theresa May has added £2 billion, but it's still nowhere near the £3 billion per year that it had before 2010. So while a reversal of Osborne's cuts is welcome, that amount is the very, very bare minimum of help that they could give. But hey, it's cool, because, you know, um, she did really well through all the coughing and stuff, and she showed real grit which I think was in her throat and causing the coughing and hey look we're all meant to just have sympathy for May now because she just she got through it you know and I can't help but feel she only did that so she could continually tell us her true thoughts that we should all cough as often as possible You send it in, I read it out That's what post-truth is all about Except it's not actually what post-truth's about But that's what this section called post-truth is about You send in letters, then I read them out So I called it post-truth, do you see what I did there? Post-truth La, 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 la. Yes, uh, this is my new section called Post Truth. Do you see what I've did there? Uh, where I'm going to be responding to the very rare bits of correspondence I get from you, the listener. Or this week, from two listeners, which is exciting because it means there's more than one of you. Don't get jealous, all right? Uh, anyway, first up is an email that I thought I'd read to you uh, pretty much verbatim as well. Um, it contains some very interesting thoughts and some info on the really upsetting situation in Myanmar at the moment, something I briefly mentioned in episode 72, and something that shows absolutely no signs of being any less depressing or horrific as the weeks go by. As you'll see um, in this letter, though, this is something you might be able to help with. So I thought I would just read it all out uh, and hopefully you might be interested in um, doing something. I will keep this listener's name and details anonymous as, uh, well, you'll see as I read out the letter. So here you go. Um, They write, uh, hi, Tiernan. It's always a good start when you email me. Um, The reason I'm emailing is that I've recently been having some issues with the politics here in Myanmar. I would guess you've heard all about the genocide ethnic cleansing in the Rakhine state, leading tens of thousands of Rohingya Muslims to flee Myanmar, risking their own lives to become refugees in Bangladesh. Living here, I get a completely different side of the story than you will in the UK. I use an app called Flipboard to get my news, so I read about the crisis in English from Western news sources I can trust. 
However, any conversation I have with a local leads to the awkward moment where they deny any violence from the military. I've had strangers admit relief when they find out I'm not Muslim, people telling me the Rohingya burn their own homes, people confidently claiming no one has died in Rakhine State. And this isn't a conversation I want to have for fear of being arrested or banned from the country. Burmese people are the nicest, warmest people I've ever met. I cannot describe how safe and welcome I feel living in this amazing country. I've lived abroad for four years in various countries, and this is hands down the best country. But there are obviously issues. After the British left the country during World War II, the resulting power vacuum led to a military regime and a year of poverty and a lack of civil rights for the Burmese. It was illegal to dye your hair, to wear certain clothes or to party. In recent years, the military government has given way to a pseudo-democracy in which Aung San Suu Kyi, Nobel Peace Prize winner, is the de facto leader, propped up by a corrupt and power-hungry military. This new government have repealed censorship, so unlike in Thailand, newspapers in Myanmar can print anything they want. However, probably worse than censorship is Section 66D, which threatens up to three years in prison for extorting, coercing, restraining wrongfully, defaming, disturbing, causing undue influence or threatening any person using a telecommunications network. Just look at that wording. You can't defame any person. You can't even disturb them. What this means in real terms is that people are scared to print anything risky. Before, under censorship, you could write whatever you want, but the government could prevent it from being printed. And now, after it's printed, your house could be stormed and you could go to prison. So the government are peddling lies, telling their citizens that no one is dying, that the Rohingya are burning their own homes, and they've been inciting hatred towards the Rohingya for years for being illegal refugees and for being Muslim. Aung San Suu Kyi can't fight this because if she does, the military will remove her from power and the whole country will return to poverty. And no one can argue with this without fear of being arrested. Myanmar is an undeveloped country with uneducated citizens. They can't get their news from another country because it would be in another language and most people can only speak and read Burmese. And until very recently, any protest against the government was quickly stopped, often with the use of violence, so there is no basis for fighting this. The government is systematically deceiving their citizens so they can go on committing genocide. The news I see in Burmese, which I try to translate, is a world apart from what I read in English. And until this stops, the government will not be challenged from within their own country. I see no news about other countries condemning Myanmar's treatment of the Rohingya, so locals won't either. When Malala condemned Aung San Suu Kyi, all Burmese news had to say about it was Malala deserves to be killed, raped or beaten. I feel very useless living here, but being unable to fight this injustice for fear of prison. Which is why I'm emailing you. Perhaps if people outside of Myanmar learned about Section 66D, something could be done about it, because nothing is changing here. The situation is getting so bad that I'm seriously considering leaving if it doesn't improve. I feel uncomfortable contributing to the economy of a country that is so corrupt, especially with my visa fees going directly into their pocket. Human Rights Watch wrote this, um, and they've put a link to the uh, Burma Repeal section, which you can find. I'll post it up on the Facebook group and the Twitter. Um, Human Rights wrote this about the law to give you some more background. Listeners can even donate to Human Rights Watch, but more than that, they could spread the word and hopefully create a discourse about it. Obviously, if you decide to mention this in a future episode, I'd prefer if you didn't use my name. It's just I'd rather not spend three years in prison. So, uh, there you go. That's the email uh, from them. They've put a couple of other notes um, and they've promised that if they ever move to a country um, that has a bank account, uh, then they'll buy me a coffee on the coffee app. It's very nice. Um, but, uh, look, it, 
that's a very important email um, and, and thank you very much for sending it anonymous listener and while it is very heartbreaking reading hearing about the situation over there and god I really hope you deleted that email after sending um, it is very useful to get info from the source as it were um, from someone who's actually living there as Myanmar has not been fully in the news since the initial attacks towards the Rohingya a few weeks ago there's been a few little bits and pieces on Newsnight but not a lot else so look listen if you're one of the listeners of this show and you are listening um, and uh, I should say various charities are working on spreading the word and repealing 66D, including the aforementioned Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International and the BurmaCampaign.org.uk They've got a brilliant draft letter you can copy and paste and then the addresses of who to send it to at the UK-based Embassy of the Republic of the Union of Myanmar, so please do check that out. Um, But look, if you're a listener, also spread the word about Section 66D, do look up those campaigns try and get some noise about it over here, that would be fantastic and of course if you're not UK-based then you can write to the Myanmar Embassy in your country uh, if you have one. Um, All these things are always always worth doing and the more global pressure that can be built up the higher the chance that this law could be repealed um it'd be really nice wouldn't it if we could actually make a bit of a fucking difference at some point so please do uh, please do help out if you can. Um, right, on a lighter but still uh, slightly depressing note, I would say, um, at mad underscore cyclist on Twitter, a.k.a. Dave, um, asked me on Twitter why I didn't ask anyone at the Labour conference about their strange support of Brexit. Um, he said strange, not me, but he is right. Um, and I just want to say I, I didn't ask um, them partly because, uh, basically, I'm a rookie interviewer and I was mainly grabbing anyone I could and I didn't think I grabbed anyone that probably give me uh, an in-depth answer on it. Um, but what I will say says if you listen to the interview with Natalie in this episode um she discusses that she thinks that what Labour are doing is the smart thing and that's kind of how I feel about it as well I mean whether or not smart is the right word but at the moment they are the opposition they're not in power they can't particularly change anything they did try and block the EU withdrawal bill which didn't work but really um, they're in a position where if they go all out for anti-Brexit they're going to lose the Brexit voting people that support Labour the third of their voters if they go all out pro-Brexit, they're going to uh, lose their two-thirds of voters that are anti-Brexit um, and really, uh, it was like as I, I sort of mentioned to Natalie when I saw John McDonnell do a talk, he kind of pointed out that the, the government just don't know what they're doing and therefore to be an effective opposition they have to kind of change their position uh, depending on what the government is saying and I think it's, in a way it, it's it's clever, again it's tricky to say that it's clever so much you kind of hope that this is all part of a plan and not just them being completely useless, you've got to have a little bit of faith um, but I do kind of think that maybe they're just waiting for the Conservatives completely balls this up, which it looks like they are and then they'll be able to step in with some sort of actually coherent plan while maintaining all the votes that they actually have Either that, or they're fucking useless, and we're all going to hell. Um, but fingers crossed, we will see. So anyway, um, God, there's actual opinions on this. I didn't even put any jokes in that. I hope you've... Oh, God, I've lost that 35%, haven't I, guys? Guys? Right, so everyone else, the treasure is hidden in... No, I'm joking. Um, right, uh, that is the last bit of correspondence, and so... <laughs> That is it for this week's show. Thank you again for listening with your ear holes. And if you haven't reviewed the show or donated at the Patreon or Kofi or told your friends about it or posted about it on social media or coughed the URL in between policies at your party conference, then please, please do. Um, thank you, as always, to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, whose new album, This Is Where It Gets Good, is now available to buy at all good, bad and indifferent music outlets. This show is going to be back next week when Brexit negotiations will no doubt involve David Davis having lost his keycard and being stuck in a revolving door while the EU goes to lunch. Bye! 
This week's show was brought to you by Philip Hammond's Triple Lockets Cough Sweets. Bitter tasting, costly and generally miserable, they should cure a cough within minutes but can't stop you being full of crap. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.